I hid it even from my mum. That I didn't even want to let my mum know that I'd gone through that. And again, that's when I realised that I was living between a journey of my mother's, my mum's journey and my journey of life. And because I was, I was always protecting her. I was protecting my mum where I didn't want her to find out what I'd gone through. My mum had said when I was in the process of meeting someone, I don't want you to do anything you don't want to. And, you know, I don't want any of my kids to ever go through a divorce. That would be my worst nightmare to you know, witness any of my children to go through what I'd been through. So I knew, and actually I was protecting her and I didn't want her to get hurt. So I hid everything I went through. But as parents, you naturally know when you see your child. And when she saw me coming home and visiting, there was weight loss constantly. And again, going back to the whole thing where, you know, hiding everything, hiding that I was dyslexic, hiding what was going on in my marriage. When I came out of that marriage, I realized do you know what? I'm not ashamed of the person I am. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Bred in Birmingham, Cal Beer Baines is the author of Not Our Daughter, The Story of a Daughter-in-Law. A narrative of marriage within a South Asian community, it tells the story of Harleen, who is trying to settle into her marriage and the challenges faced in doing so. Reflective of Calbe's own personal journey, her story is made all the more remarkable as a dyslexia diagnosis meant that at the age of 22, Calbea was told that she had the reading ability of a seven-year-old. Embarking on a journey to be able to express her thoughts through writing, poetry, art and design, Calbea now works as an ambassador, talking openly to organisations, societies and charities about her experiences of domestic violence and abuse, gender inequality, abortion and many more real issues that often go on behind closed doors. On a mission to transform, empower and inspire others, Calbia was the recipient of the Social and Humanitarian Award at the Asian Women of Achievement Awards, part of the Women of the Future programme in 2018. So there's six of us in total and um, mom and dad got divorced when I was nine years old. So it was really weird because we grew up in a household where mum, so obviously it's a Punjabi household where we never really showed the community what was going on behind closed doors. So my dad actually was an alcoholic and quite abusive father. But when we were going to weddings or functions, we never really showed it to anyone. And it was just a dumb thing because you never spoke about anything that went on behind closed doors outside. So if you went to any school activities and anybody asked like how come just your mum's turned up for parents evening and not your dad and one of us would tend to go with mum to kind of communicate because she didn't speak fluent English because she was an immigrant in this country whereas our father was one years old when he came to England and had schooling here 
So mum had that immigrant kind of traditional upbringing. Dad was very westernised. Westernised, but funny enough, he was more traditional than her. Yet she was the one that gave us the freedom because mm. the things that she lost out on, she wanted us to have those opportunities. So it was a household, I'd say, where you had to not let people outside know what was going on in the community, basically. And you live a double life. That's the way I'd best describe it, a double life. How much were you aware of it as a young child? Because I know myself, there were things that happened when I was very young. and I probably didn't necessarily fully appreciate the meaning of it until I became older or put it into context or found out a little bit more about society and cultural beliefs and what have you. How much as a child would you say that you knew what was going on? I think I knew what was going on at home but and were very strongly embedded not to share it with anyone Mm. Um, and that was a struggle because you're almost living two lives in one but you're then putting up this almost like you know when we say we're at work like a second hat or another hat or you know to deal with things it's the same thing you were actually going out and putting out that everything's great at home Mm. even though you knew the night before there'd been like an episode of domestic abuse go on at home but you couldn't share it with anyone and if there, if there was anyone, it was my mum's older sister and her family and kids knew. So, again, rarely talked about or the kids would ask us kids, how are you doing? Because we wouldn't share any of that information at all. So I really wasn't. I was living this life not knowing until I got to 16. And I remember we were going to go to college. And that's when we sat down with all our um, high school friends, me and my twin, and they'd asked us, they'd asked actually a few times, where's your dad? And we'd always say he's at work. And by that stage, my parents had divorced. And again, we never shared it with the community. Nobody knew. But the people on the, the road we lived on in the street, they knew because they saw the abuse going on. It gone from the front door to the street a couple of times and the police had to be called. So they knew, but we hid it still from everybody else outside of the road. And it was, yeah, I think until I got to 16, having to disclose it for the first time to school friends mm. and we're going to college and who our college friends were going to be. And then I allowed friends to come home to my family home to visit. My two best friends were Mimi and Mariam that I allowed, like said, come on, you can come to stop over the night and mine because I never had friends stop over prior to that with the fear of people observing and finding out what's going on at home. And um, when I went away to uni was the first time I opened up to a friend that, you know, this has gone out at home. So it was gradually through slower processes. And as I got into adulthood, into my 20s, I realised that's when a lot of people had dysfunction families. Right. And they'd, they were talking about it at uni and, you know, going into my career and job and stuff. The people were just open about it, which allowed me to be open. Yeah. And part of the process for you you learn to express yourself through and your thoughts through writing poetry and art and design but writing was one of the biggest challenges for you wasn't it because at the age of 22 you had the reading capacity of a seven-year-old and were you diagnosed with dyslexia or how did that diagnosis come about? So again because of everything going on at home nobody really had other than my twin sister used to check my homework because mom was an immigrant and she couldn't speak. Um, like she spoke a bit of English, but she didn't read or write. And again, dad did read and write, but he wasn't there present. So it was where all through school again, that was another thing I hid. So that was two things I was hiding, not just <laughs> what the abuse going at home, but also 
I'm dyslexic and I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know who to combine in because I've been conditioned and brought up to hide my feelings and my emotions. And I'd gone through all through school and it was only till like my two best friends, Mimi and Mary at college, they'd paid attention coming around to my home, hanging out with me at college and realised because Mariam had a friend who was dyslexic and pointed it out to the lecturer. And the lecturer took me into her office and said, I think there's something you've got to tell me. And I just sat there like, there's nothing I've got to tell you. And she was waiting for me to kind of, because I'd expressed to both of them the night before that I'm dyslexic. I think I am because they'd explained to me what it was. And they goes, because we've been helping you with your assignments. You know, do you think there's anything else that you struggle with? So I'd opened up to both of them. They'd opened up to Jane. Jane had um, had a son who was dyslexic with numbers, took me into the office, sat me down, and we spent the whole day in their office. Mm. Where, and it was where she was like, I'm going to get you lunch. I'm going to get you an afternoon tea. Um, when you're ready, I'm, I'm still waiting for you. And I was just sat there, like, mind-boggling that, what have I got to tell her? And eventually, by the afternoon, I broke and I'd cried. And I said, I don't know what I meant to tell you. And then she just said something you're struggling with and then she went into the details where I was skipping all my fine art written work all my history of fashion classes but all my actual practical classes I was getting distinctions in so she was a bit baffled where she wasn't baffled she knew I was struggling with the written theory part of it but she needed me to own up to her for then to provide me with the support but unless I don't admit it to myself, how can I seek that help? Yeah. And so you needed I, the right environment to do it in and the right person to ask to get you yeah. to open up. Yeah. And she did. And I remember then as soon as I'd admitted everything, she'd had all the documents in her drawer. Oh, really? She'd opened, yeah. She'd opened up her drawer and she pulled out all the documents and she said, this is who you need to see. And then she opened up about her son saying he's dyslexic with numbers and that how many times a day she has to call him to check he's in his classes or he's gone to the next activity. She goes, it's okay to struggle and to ask for help. So she had and those forms for you? She had them ready and waiting for, ready when, you, and waiting. for when you were ready to come yeah. and speak to her? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so she'd open. And the thing is, do you know when a family member's ever opened a drawer or something is to put away something? Yes. I've never had someone open it up to give me something from it yeah, wow. and it was like her top drawer I remember she opened up and Jane Grace was her name um, the lecturer at the Institute of Art and Design in Birmingham and when she did that I was just like okay I was obviously overwhelmed my emotions yeah. were all over the place and she said when you're ready come back and even talk to me and I want to go through each step and stage with you and if you struggle to contact the people I'm happy to be there to make those phone calls with you and it was that consistency support and saying assuring me everything's okay but as soon as I walked out of her office my two friends were there oh so they'd all kind of sounds like they'd all kind of organized this yeah which is so remarkable so the support was continuing and I think and also Mariam and Mimi I'm still friends with this day and we've had a massive impact on each other's lives they really have encouraged me and my confidence wasn't there. Mm. I never believed I could go to university. I could never believe I could do any, like even an A4 sheet of written work. These two friends constantly supported me, helped me apply for university. 
well, the three of us had this vision we're going to go to London College of Fashion live together live this high life mm-hmm. um me and Mariam got rejected well all three of us got rejected from London College of Fashion but Mimi didn't give in until she got in she was adamant and she got in and and I know and then me and Mariam went to Manchester together you know we've done our university we've gone away done our careers but we're still in contact because we know the impact we've had on each other's lives and also it was opening up during that time with people I trusted and friendship Mm. for the first time that I had in my home I went and stopped at their homes our families connected and I remember when I went to uni I stopped with Marion for a week because my accommodation wasn't sorted Marion's parents assured my mum that I'm going to be okay they're happy to support and help with bringing us back and forwards Marion's dad would take us out for dinner at first year at uni on a set night it became a really good like a community which I felt safe in that sounds so lovely yeah what was your first job out of education? I'm sure like most of us, you've probably done lots of little bits of part-time bits and bobs, but what was your first proper job? First proper job? I actually, okay, so because I've had a passion for fashion, I'd, um, from a young age, watching my mum being a machinist. So she had a job with this factory where she was a machinist and she'd got me and my twin sister a job for the summer working in the quality control department oh, okay. and just checking the quality of the garments before they went into um, wrapped up to be going on okay. to a loading van yeah. so and for me that was really exciting because I wanted to be in fashion I wanted to understand the production and I know I wanted to be at the top of the design job as a designer not in a factory but to understand it I needed to be in the factory to know the process so I did that I actually did quality control which really was practical, wasn't anything to do with reading anything or writing anything. But funny enough, I'd actually applied for a job that my cousin encouraged me to apply for the Daily Express in Wolverhampton. (laughs) And I applied for it and she helped me with the application form, but I was so anxious. I went for the interview. I never got the job, but I was relieved I never got the job because I knew I was going to struggle in it. But it's really weird because I went through the process of my cousin encouraging me to apply and she helped me with the application. She did the application, but I didn't do any of it. So it was mad because I'd leap into do things, even though I knew I couldn't do them. And yeah. I'd apply for stuff. But then I knew I was, so I got to the interview and knew on the day I'm not going to get the job, but I'm going to go for the interview anyway, just to see. And being the a ex- learning the experience lesson, as experience. well is really beneficial, isn't it? Yeah. Then after that, my other job was, um, again, Mariam's dad tried to get me and Mariam a job in the call centre he used to manage. So I was struggling with that and Mariam was absolutely fine. I remember going in with her and I went, how do you say that again? I've got rehearsed that line. <laughs> and it was the fun of going with Mariam, but I wasn't doing the job so fantastically. And I knew I was struggling because <laughs> I didn't have the yeah. confidence as well. But it was quite good. So I remember Mariam saying, going to her dad, it's boring. We don't want to both do it. And he went, OK, that's fine. He took us out for dinner and then dropped us back to our accommodation. And that was it. <laughs> so and then it was sales after that, retail. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the retail of it because, again, it was linked to fashion. But I think I was actually engaging in conversation with people, which is a strong element of mine connecting with people Mm. finding out about them as well as sharing I never really shared much about myself I'd be interested to hear about their stories because I didn't want people still to know much about me right so I'd be a bit of a closed book and then eventually I started opening up and I thought it's okay no one's judging you 
you're connecting with people emotionally more than anything else. And it was that and retail extend from the age of 16, then going all the way through to, yeah, continuing on. And again, Marion Meany and myself worked at House of Fraser in Birmingham together. And then my mum would pick us up every Thursday night and would have dinner at my house, stop her and go to college on the Friday mornings. I've got really good memories again with my two best friends that have got the job at the House of Fraser with me. I'm kind of envisaging you as like Charlie's angels in my head. Yeah. <laughs> like the three of you. I don't know why, but it's something that's come to me. And it was really nice because my friends were from a very young age because I was brought up in an Asian community and all I had was Asian friends at school. When I got to college, none of my friends were Asian. They were all diverse. So Mimi was originally from Vietnam and she's she's Asia. Marion was, I think she's Austrian and she's Julian Heritage mixed with something else. I can't remember now. And then Stephanie was Jewish. Alison was um, British white. And then you had Dominic who was black, African. So none of my friends were. And then our circle of friends from, again, going around to each other's family, homes, food, culture was completely different and diverse and we took the best from each other which was so beautiful it sounds lovely absolutely and obviously you talked a lot about Mariam and Mimi and Jane as well but and also that it also feels like a really strong element of you believing in serendipity or fate like more of like a fatalistic like you're in the right place doing the right thing but I wanted to come on to how you came to write your book not our daughter and I suppose as part of that, what set you off on that particular path? Why did you feel like you had to write it? I think, you know, again, I'm talking about this, having this safe space and people around me, a community that allowed me to be myself. I then went into a marriage. And again, it took me back to my childhood where I had to put this front up as soon as I've got married and I had to carry honour with that name. Was it an organised, arranged it was, marriage? I had an arranged marriage and, I, and I've got to say, I had an arranged marriage and I, at the time I was in love with my partner who I was getting married with. So there was no, no one had forced me into anything and I was very happy to have an arranged marriage mm. and to meet someone through family. Um, but I found going through that process, it was keeping appearance up again and what a society going to say, how you see it, how you behave. I've actually just broken away from that after so many years and being able to express and be myself. And then I'm starting to fall back into that, not realizing until later on, like now and even talking about it, you know, you can see it, how it was slowly creeping up on you. But once you're involved in that situation, you don't see it creeping up on you. You happen to just fall into it even deeper. And then when I came out of that marriage, I remember constantly when I remember saying, sharing with my partner that I'm dyslexic and I struggle, but I, at the time I was a fashion designer. I worked for design companies. I was traveling with my job. I was enjoying my job and the people I worked with. And, you know, and I was in a great space in my own life and uh, career wise as well. And then I remember him saying, please don't share that. And also when I told him, obviously my parents were divorced please don't let people know you're from a single parent household. And it was certain things after, and it was after I've got married, can you not share that information? Because I shared it with, I remember a family friend of theirs that popped around who mm. said she was divorced. And just to make her feel comfortable, I said to her, look, oh, my parents are divorced. And as soon as she left, I remember his parents and him saying, please don't share personal information. Why and did it they stem- say that? Why did they say that? 
I think because, you know, in the South Asian community, we seek perfection. Right. And so we want everything to be standing, standard, yeah, and, yeah, and being like perfect. And nobody knew me because obviously I was from Birmingham and they were from down south and mm. there was no connection with the community that they lived in. And it was almost where we want people to have this perfect image of this person. And again, breaking away from it and then going through those 19 months of hiding the truth or I was going through in my marriage, which I was going through quite a lot of abuse um and also I was you know the house I was living in the door locks um I didn't have the keys to that household I was allowed into that home out of that home and I was 28 years of age the house telephone was tapped so they were listening into conversation there was so much that went on in my marriage yeah. that I hid it even for my mum that I didn't even want to let my mum know that I'd gone through that and again that's when I realized that I was living between a journey of my mother's my mom's journey and my journey of life and because I was I was always protecting her I was protecting my mom where I didn't want her to find out what I'd gone through my mom had said when I was in the process of meeting someone I don't want you to do anything you don't want to and you know I don't want any of my kids to ever go through a divorce that would be my worst nightmare to you know witness any of my children to go through what I'd been through so I knew and naturally I was protecting her and I didn't want her to get her. So I hid everything I went through. But as parents, you naturally know when you see your child. And when she saw me coming home and visiting, there was weight loss constantly. And again, going back to the whole thing where, you know, hiding everything, hiding that I was dyslexic, hiding what was going on in my marriage. When I came out of that marriage, I realized, do you know what? I'm not ashamed of the person I am. And I'm okay. And I'm not ashamed to be dyslexic. And constantly I was reminded that I'm stupid, constantly reminded that, you know, even though I was working as a designer and I remember having to give up that job because of where I was living and that, you know, then I was getting job opportunities after marriage and the opportunities I was getting where I was, I'm going to have to travel abroad. And I was told I couldn't take that job because you're going to have to travel abroad. Mm. And have you not thought this through? And then are you stupid? That word stupid was constantly used. And it kind of, again, being around the right people encouraging you, pushing you, making you believe in yourself. That community I had all of a sudden has gone. And then I've got people around me constantly reminding me of my flaws and that I'm not so perfect and that I'm not doing so great. Where's my head? Where am I not thinking when I'm applying for jobs? And what makes you think you can go for that job? You start believing that. Mm. And I came out of that marriage with hardly any confidence. My confidence was at its lowest peak. And that's when I realized I've got to rebuild myself, believe in myself. I actually went back to reset my GCSE English and I actually passed. Oh. And I also got, I remember Emma, the teacher in Milton Kings. And I remember that's where I did my um, GCSE English. The lecturer was teaching an adult course for the first time. And she said, she's never taught an adult course, but the whole class had passed their GCSE. That's that, amazing. Yeah? for her it was the greatest like a great achievement she even waited outside when we got our um, results and came to greet us all and I remember she'd put me in for the higher paper because when I did GCSEs which was you know in 1996 a while ago they were done differently there wasn't such thing as being entered into the higher paper where you're going to be you know anything between an A star to a C mm. or a C is the highest you get down to the lowest two I think is it an F or something or F and so the thing was she'd submitted me for a higher paper for English because of my grades with all the assignments and everything and I was enjoying it 
thanks to the people in the class because we were giving each other support. You think there's also a determination within you to crack on and prove everybody wrong? Like you say, coming out of that marriage must have been the worst experience and it would take some awful lot of strength and resilience to do that. But also I would imagine a hearty sense of determination to be like, screw you, this is what yeah. I want, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, there was um, an element of that and I'm not going to have anyone tell me that I exactly. can't achieve something or do something. Having gone through that experience of people saying you're stupid, you know, yeah. your, your self-esteem is on the floor, all of that kind of thing. To turn yeah. that around is quite phenomenal, really. So I was, I don't know, I just one day just made a decision. I'm going to believe in myself and I'm going to stop listening to people around me. And this is where I started using you know, a lot of earphones when the music got very loud, didn't want to hear the noise around me. And I just got onto it. And then I remember, and it also that class, I think also the class, everybody was in that class to support each other. If somebody didn't understand it, we'd go over to the other table to explain it to the other person, how, the other, how we've got it, and then take different methods to explain things and to involve everyone. And it became almost like a family in that classroom. And if someone missed a class, we all supported each other. We created a group. And it was through that, I remember that, like I did, I excelled really well. And again, I'm friends with a couple of people from that course still to this day as well. And I remember the day before the course, I'd actually gone in and asked if I could go for the lower paper because I was happy to get a C. I didn't need to prove to myself I need an A or a B or a, um, yeah. or a C or an A star just the fact I'm passing my GCSE English was enough for me because my confidence kind of came in and it kind of dropped and I'd submitted myself for the lower paper and I managed to get a double C in, in English. So for me, I was just chuffed. And one okay. of the elements I really enjoyed, thank you, was um, the creative writing piece because I wrote in a piece from my childhood of when I used to go and stop at my um, great nana's sister's house and I got an A start and that was the first assignment I'd given in. So wow. I decided, yeah, and I decided, why did I enjoy that? And I enjoyed it so much because visually, just reflecting back on my memory, my childhood and good moments and how it made me feel. And then the other one was, we did a Romeo and Juliet piece. And again, to analyze that piece, I'd watched the film. And again, visually, that's what I realized, my visual language was a lot more stronger and analyzing yeah. scenes. And at GCSE English, I'd had got an A in drama and that's 50% written work. And again, it comes down to how much you enjoyed something. So that's when I kind of put everything together, realised that I'm sick of people around me telling me how I should even after I've become a divorcee be sitting behaving. Why don't I challenge some of this behaviour? Why don't I just write about my journey, break away from that mould of generations of keeping silence of women before me? and express it in a book in something that's going to challenge me to grow as a person as well absolutely so the book is your story the book is my story and um, a bit of element of my mum and my nan in there and the journey of having this big fat Indian wedding and then trials and tribulations of having an arranged marriage and then ending up divorce um, and the struggles I went through that whole marriage in 19 months I normally ask on this podcast that across all the work that you've done, is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? And I would assume it's the book. Do you know what? No. Yes and no. Um, I think my greatest joy has been when I've had 
I went in 2018, I was doing a talk with the West Midlands police within the community. And it was a group of women that had come from a hostel. And when they watched, because I've created a short film as well, which I only um, play in private events. And the short film I played, and as soon as I finished, I did the talk. And then I had the book and I talked about how I've changed my journey. I watched this table that sat in front of me break down crying. Oh, wow. And I've never cried at any events. I actually, at the end, they all waited to talk to me, to meet me. And it was that moment there. That was my proudest moment. And I remember one of them saying to me, how long will it take for me to get into your shoes? That was so powerful. And I couldn't give her an answer. And I actually filled up and broke down. I said, you know what? But I can tell you one thing, you're going to be in my shoes one day, but I don't know how long it's going to take you. Your journey is probably going to be different to mine. Mine's taken me eight years to get this strong. And I think the books connected me. If I hadn't have written it and challenged myself and grown, it's connected me with some amazing people. Yeah. It's the people and the journey of empowering other people through your journey. I'd say is a great achievement. And when I started the journey, I wanted change. My intention was just pure change. And I want it was 1%. I think I've got far more than that. It's where contributing to policies, contributing to reaching out to the community to say it's okay for you to Mm. be you and accept those struggles you're going through. And yes, I have gone into schools when I see kids looking at me. And so like when I've gone in and said I'm dyslexic and at the end, how many kids come up to me and be like, so how have you done it? Have you written the book? What was the bit, the obstacles you came over? And it's just you know, saying to them, if I've got it, you're going to go through this and you're going to be here and you're going to be able to go through all those careers you can and your dyslexia is not going to stop you. Mm, absolutely. And everyone's individual story is different, right? Like you say, whether yeah. it's a school kid with dyslexia, whether it's a woman struggling to get out of her arranged marriage or any kind of abusive domestic relationship, because family relationships are so messy sometimes, aren't yeah. they? Anybody's trying to overcome their own obstacles in life and it's very individual isn't it and I'm sure you had quite a lot of support like from family and friends but I would I would hope also from networks and organizations yeah. and companies that have helped guide you through this as well yeah definitely and you know also saying having mentors and having the right people around you really makes a massive difference and I think for me what's finding again a safe community for me the starting point was the Sharon project you know a group of women that were like-minded that were encouraging me and I remember saying to the founder Polly Harrow I haven't yet finished this or I haven't she said how about you learn as you go along but you because I remember saying to her I'm not ready to publish yet and she said, because um, she was helping me with the setup of the launch with the publishing and, you know, and the, the processes and some of the platforms I was going to be talking on. And she said, you don't have to be ready. How about you? Because I, I think as women as well, we tend to think we need to know every aspect of that job or that every aspect of that element we're doing. And men tend to have the confidence to just jump in and leap mm. and learn on the way. So again, that was lack of confidence in me. And I remember Polly saying that to me and saying also, what if you just leap in and learn as you go along? Yeah, completely. And then also when it comes to something like writing a book, like done is better than perfect. Like get it out, like get it on the paper, have it there. And then that's a fantastic starting point. Because I felt like I have to have the website and I have to have this done and that. She was, how about you get it done as you're going along? It's okay if everything isn't so perfect. And I did that. And by doing that, everything fell into place. I have people ask me, did you have a plan? Not really. Mm. I didn't have a plan. I just took the leap of faith, like you said. 
and everything came towards me. What was meant for me happened to come towards me. I had no intention I've got or a strategy plan that I'm going to do this and that. And I ended up connecting with the right people, Mm -hmm. like-minded people. And especially when it comes to like even education, people that have supported me that are very highly intelligent that came along and I thought, you know what, I'd love you as a mentor. And then just leaping out and asking Mm -hmm. and having that safe community around me you know and everyone has different strengths when you're in a group even when you're in a workforce everyone's different and you bring your individuality to the table which then makes you a stronger team a stronger community and that's what I found that I'd actually gained out of this as well which has been really beautiful yeah people often ask me like how do you go about getting a mentor and it's like is there someone you admire have you asked them yeah and qualities yeah. that you find you think actually that person like I would love to be in her shoes in 10 years time or be that person in the future so how about I ask them what their learnings are have I asked them if they mentor me yeah and especially even now being in COVID you know having to meet up with mentors you don't have to meet them physically you can even do through Zoom now there's so many ways of connecting and reaching out and learning from them as well because the good thing with mentors is they'll tell you where things didn't go right for them they even show you or guide you that this is the best way to do it so I think having Polly Harrow to start off with and then I also had um, another mentor was Mandy Sangera and then I also had a family friend of mine Cav and then they just guided me and then I had um, Rakesh was another person after meeting me after my book launch who'd reached out and said I'd love to mentor you and he's a life coach and I think just having the right people sit down, talk through things, guide you makes a massive difference. And again, having the right community around you makes a massive difference. And then this leads me very nicely on to how you first heard about the Women of the Future programme and what inspired you to get involved with them. So Women of the Future programme, it was Mandy Sangera in 2016. She'd put me forward for an award and she'd gone cabbage please reach out and connect and I remember again not having the confidence it wasn't women of the future it was Asian women of achievers award I didn't have the confidence I remember I was going through redundancies and the book and just got a new job and I was taking a flight out to Dublin and Mandy had put me forward they'd asked me for references And I was like, I'm on a flight. And then I remember Mandy was on a flight to New York for a United Nations conference. We're all on our own little routes. And then I remember Andrea reaching out to me and I asked her to just pull me out because I just felt I'm not going to rush something if I'm not mentally ready for it. And I'll just leave it there and park it. And then a year later, I had one of my mentors that had reached out and said, I remember Mandy Singer putting you forward for this award and you took a step back. I'm going to put you forward this year and get ready for it and again I didn't think anything of it and he'd put me forward and I was like okay that's fair enough and didn't think anything of it didn't reach out or anything didn't hear anything until I get like the shortlist yeah. and I'm like oh my god I've made it through and for me that was enough I'm gonna be honest <laughs> just and even going for the interviews I remember going there and I was so overwhelmed and I'd come up all the way from Birmingham and I remember meeting some of the team at the entrance and I'd got there with my trainers on and I was getting there at the entrance, changing into my heels. And I remember going up and it was like a little girl moment where I never thought I'd be in a room full of real game changing women. Absolutely. And when I saw the shortlist, I was like, wow, I can't wait to meet people and connecting with them. 
and then it was really overwhelming and it was really exciting and I remember my mentor met me waited downstairs whilst I went to the reception bit oh, because I was so nice. scared to attend it by myself oh. so I'd gone up and then um, met a few of the women that I'd connected with and I met Sir Nicholas Young as well I'd spoken to that day oh he's and brilliant I, he is and then on top of that I remember seeing Pinky but I didn't know who Pinky was I had the so same again, experience yeah you're like oh, she's I, this magnetic though isn't magnetic, she but yeah. everybody was drawing <laughs> to her and I was mm. like who is she and then I remember asking one of the girls, who is she? And she went, that's actually the founder of the awards. Went, oh, okay. But then I was like, I remember standing so further away, but I remember with my group of girls I was talking to and I thought, well, this, she's, she's surrounded with so many people. There's no point reaching out to you and saying hello. I left it then, but Sir Nicholas Young was with us talking mm. and we're talking away. And again, we talked about like teachers. And I remember saying to him how much my teachers had made such an impact. That was my starting part of my journey. And we're talking away and there was a teacher in the um, group of us girls that were talking. I can't remember her name, but I remember. I got a bit emotional, so Nicholas Young gave me his napkin. And she, she was a teacher and afterwards she went to me. When we'd gone through the awards, we went to the awards dinner. She said to me, I was wondering if you gave him his napkin back. Because I didn't actually use his napkin. Um, oh, was it like a handkerchief? handkerchief. He gave you his handkerchief. Oh, okay. He gave me his handkerchief and I never used it. And I remember returning it back to him. She goes, I remember seeing him returning it back. And she goes, and I thought, did you use it and return it back? Better snot. Here you go. No, <laughs> I would have at least washed it if I did that and get return it back to him. Or quite my brand new one, and I'm like, I didn't use it. And she, okay, that's good because we had a little chuckle about the day and how nervous we were all. And then I remember leaving there after I did the interviews, connected with a few of the women, and then I saw them again at the awards. Oh, and then okay. I realised I've got a final. And when I got final, I remember again, I never shared it because I thought I'm not going to win. Then I remember sharing the final on the evening of the awards dinner. And for me, that was going there for the meal, enjoying it and thinking, you know, meeting a room full of phenomenal people. And the fact I've got this far, thank you. I kept saying to the universe on the way there. Aww. And um, when they called, and I remember there was two women in my category, which I was blowing away with and one I'd actually had been following and it was where she was making secondhand dresses selling them and the funding she was getting with that she was actually using that money to educate women in Pakistan and Afghanistan so to me she was just phenomenal I remember saying to her how excited I was to meet her and the other girls in the category and to me she and another woman who won the chair award were the winners so when they called my name I remember thinking what they got that wrong <laughs> and then I went up and I was not expecting to win I remember even saying to my mom and people around me I'm not going to win so there's no <laughs> point you coming to support me because I'm not going to win <laughs> and um, just to be how wrong you were how wrong you were I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> and, uh, but I think it was it was lovely to go in that mindset and be surprised mm, genuinely nice there, isn't it in a way yeah I didn't have a speech I didn't have anything planned and I, I remember like going there and then I went with a friend as well that came along and supported. And one of my mentors, Rakesh, was there as well on another table as well. So got there, won, and then I got part of the Women of the Future program. And then um, again, meeting like-minded women and connecting because I don't have a big platform of a group of women that I know, but to meet women that are like-minded and to go to the events and connect, I've met so I've had a couple of ideas with um, some of the stuff I want to do and to connect with like-minded women and to actually support each other, encourage each other yeah. and to say, let's work together. Let's make this happen. 
for you know the greater humanity is being beauty like beautiful and also you meet people that challenge you in that group as well because there's people with every field Mm-hmm. You know, you've got women that are scientists, you've got women that are in engineering, you know, um, and high leaders, executive CEOs, people that have set up their own businesses, just meeting women from all walks of life, women that are mums, that are grandmas, and, you know, and saying that, watching them do it, if they can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful to see. So to be a part of that platform has been just a journey in itself and it's been beautiful to just constantly connecting with people and amazing women right I have some quick fire questions for you okay to finish okay what would you describe as your greatest success oh like I said the people have touched and your greatest failure my greatest failure not believing in myself and feeling shameful for the work I do sometimes and I've been like no don't feel shame don't feel shame at all with your journey be proud of your journey why would you feel shame just culturally again yeah culturally or if I've been around people that don't get me they've made me feel shame at times and I've never I felt it a couple of years ago even after winning all these awards and being recognized so it's got nothing to do with if you win an award or not I think learning to be comfortable in yourself internally is so important so that's a journey in itself and accepting yourself and saying it's okay this is my journey and I went through that hardship journey to be where I am today Mm. and don't feel ashamed of it because there's been moments where I have felt shame and it's recognizing it and accepting myself as I am the mantra of Woman of the Future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? Um, that's what's got me where I am today. Mm. Kindness and collaboration. And that's something I have to do in my day job as well as outside of what I've achieved. I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't collaborate with people, if I didn't. Um, and leading with kindness makes massive difference. Being empathy and when you share your journey someone else opens up listening and really understanding where they're coming from goes a long way Mm. Um, then you're able to give that person you know may that be the information they need or the genuine emotion that they need to believe in themselves makes a massive difference it's not just believing in themselves it's just making them feel comfortable and accepting them as they are is there anything that scares you anything that scares me um do you know what there's been moments when I've had people love me correctly that's made me feel scared at times yeah because it literally made my heart ache (laughs) when I've had people love me just the way I am and love me in the right way that scares me at times because I've been times when I've been not used to that environment or used to people giving me genuine love and it's me recognizing it and accepting it has been really the hardest part of my journey oh i want to hug you (laughs) such a lovely thing what is left on your to-do list oh god a lot yeah (laughs) how long have we got (laughs) yeah a lifetime do you know what i think and i'll say this to anyone don't ever think you're done because continue challenging yourself and growing and 
my bucket list has just got longer and longer. Add more to it to grow in every way possible. Life is there to be enjoyed and grow. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking to you and getting to know you a little bit better and understanding what makes you tick and all the lovely <laughs> little components that make you into this brilliant person. So thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.